Dwayne asked me to, to preach today a few weeks ago when he was going to be gone. Of course, we're praying for that team as they are in the Philippines. A few updates that we've had uh, have, have been mostly good. I think they're – so I'm having an issue with my, with my technology. Um, they had an issue with some motion sickness going on the boat to go over, but that's all past. They're at their final location. I've been there a couple of few days now, so continue to pray for them. We look forward to hearing from them when they get back in a couple of weeks. Uh, at the good gospel work that God has done in them and through them. Uh, and so when Dwayne asked me to preach, you know, I started looking around and kind of thinking where he was going and, and where, we, uh, where we have been and, and where God would lead me. And God led me here to Hebrews 6, uh, particularly with the first couple of verses in mind. And then I got a couple of verses down. After I'd already settled and started uh, sermon prep and notes, I got a few verses in and I thought, oh, what, what did I do? Um, because this text is, in, in some ways, this is a difficult, a difficult passage. Uh, it, it contains some very, very stern warnings about falling away from the faith and, and what that means and what it doesn't mean. It contains, but really does contain some encouragement for us as we strive to live for Christ, to follow him in the gospel, uh, those of us that are believers in Christ. Now, always keep in mind what, who a book was written by, who it was written to. We don't. Most people think it was written by Paul. Some think people Luke. We don't know for sure, so you'll hear me say the author or the writer of Hebrews a lot. And that's why. But it was written to Jewish believers, young Jewish believers. At this point, all believers were pretty young in their faith. But these came from a religious background, a good Jewish religious background. So we have to know that it is particularly pointed as well to us, church people. Especially those that have... Been in church a long time, sat under gospel preaching for a long time. Notice I didn't say to believers, I said to church people. We'll get to that later, why, that, why, why that's phrased that way. So let's read our text, and then we're going to pray, and we'll get to work and see what God would have us today. I'm, I'm going to ask you to stand today as we read the text and read the Word of God together, please. Hebrews chapter 6. It will be on the screen in case you don't have a copy of God's Word. Uh, if you do not, there's usually some on the back table, and we have multiple translations and versions that we can offer you to keep. If you do not own a Bible, you see me, you see Brent, see Dwayne when he gets back, we will give you a Bible because we believe it's that important. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instructions about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of, one, of, case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. 
And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. God, thank you, Father, for your word and all that it contains. Lord, we thank you for the passages that make us pause and give us concern to think about. We thank you for the parts that give us pure encouragement and joy and confidence in Christ and in Christ alone. Father, I thank you for the privilege of sharing today from your word. Help me by your grace in the Holy Spirit, Lord, to do so well and rightly. And starting with my own heart and my own life, Lord, you give us the gift of enabling our faith, of responding to you and what you would have said to us. We give you thanks and praise for what you're going to do. Amen and amen. You may be seated. So quickly, there are, for our purposes today, there's three parts of the passage that we're going to look at. We're going to focus on first... And we don't always give uh, sermons names just to be cheesy or or catchy. This just kind of happened to fall with a rhyme. Uh, It's deep root, good fruit, and a sure foot. The first is deep root, and this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those of us who have been in church for any length of time, you have heard the gospel if you've been paying attention at all. If you have not heard it clearly or maybe missed it, today you will hear it clearly. The gospel of Jesus is our hope, our life, our root. And the second point is good fruit. When we have, when a person has rightly responded to the gospel, your new life, our new life begins. And any new life, just like an infant, a new life is marked by growth. A seedling will not stay a seedling if it's in good ground and properly nurtured, right? But it will grow and eventually bear its fruit in season. A person who's truly experienced the grace of God and hearing and responding by repentance and faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ must and will, over the course of their life, show evidence of it. And third and lastly, we'll look at the sure foot. And that is this. Sure foot in in terms of steadiness of foot, confidence. That is that the same gospel that has saved us is the same gospel that will keep us until the end. That will keep us from completely falling away. That will keep us from losing our salvation and straying from our Savior completely. We will see that it is God himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ by the indwelling Holy Spirit that does this work in us. We cannot do it on our own. So we're going to go back to verse 1 and we're going to begin working through our text and see perhaps what what God would say to each of us. Uh, So let's read again verses 1 through 3. Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So we we start there in the first verse with a therefore. Now you know the rule about the word therefore. It's a little kind of cheesy, but but it works. Anytime you see the word therefore, go back a little bit and figure out what it's there for, right? So that... so. For the sake of time, we're going to take a very, a very blunt explanation of that from the writer from the previous four verses. Because if you look at the previous four verses about this, we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles and oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice can distinguish good from evil. The summary is this. Okay, Hebrews, church people, since you shouldn't be babies anymore, that's what it said. 
Since we shouldn't be babies anymore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Now, the commentator Warren Wiersbe calls this a scolding, and it kind of is. A scolding, how did, how did he say it? A scolding of the readers because of their spiritual dullness. But I would say, if you look at the whole book, it's not, the sternness of tone is not because the writer is angry. And, and it's not, when, 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 when Dwayne preaches hard, it's not because he or Brent or I are angry. It's because the writer loves these people and he wants good for them. And we love you and we want good for you. We want good for us, we want good for you. Uh, so he's going to use this language. As I've listened to a couple of guys treat this text, Matt Chandler put it this way. He said, by now you should be eating the filet, the filet mignon. You should be eating a pork chop and some mashed potatoes, but instead, spiritually, you're still on the bottle. Right? Y'all don't like this, do you? <laughs> this is why he, we get to the therefore. Right? Sometimes... Sometimes the things we see from here and the conversations we have to have and the passages of Scripture we have to work through and the things God says to us and wants in our life are difficult conversations. And that's where we find ourselves right here in this part of, this, of the letter. By the way, don't, don't misunderstand. I'm right there. I'm right there with you. God has been waylaying me with this. Text. The only reason I may seem a little more comfortable because I'm working through it quickly is I've been sitting on this for about three weeks now. I've been wrestling with this for about three weeks now. So since we should be off the bottle by now, since we shouldn't be babies anymore, let us leave, verse 1, let us leave the, the basic, childish, beginner level things of the faith and go on to maturity. Let us leave the foundation. John Calvin put it this way. As in building a house, one must never leave the foundation, yet to always be laboring in building the foundation would be ridiculous. Makes sense, right? Once, once you've finished a good foundation, let's say you're building a house, you've finished a good, solid foundation, it doesn't make sense to just keep building the foundation. Or even more, to tear it down and redo it exactly the same way. We leave our foundations of our faith. Now, to leave the foundations of our faith, it doesn't mean we, we lose them, we move beyond them, or we forget about them. But rather, the basic things of the faith, we settle in our hearts by faith. We settle them in our hearts and minds and constantly base everything off them. The basic things, the gospel becomes the foundation for the building of our life in Christ, every part of it. Okay? You may have heard me say it this way. You, that we don't just need the gospel to save us from hell. We don't just need the gospel to change our eternity. We need the gospel to keep us there. We need the gospel to empower us, to guide us, to do the continuing work that God wants to see in us, to do it in us. I've called it the continuing gospel. Because we make this mistake that the gospel is something that happened there and then I live the rest of my life. No, no. The gospel is your life. Right? So, in order for that to be the case, we should be, we should be striving to, to learn more about God, to deepen our understanding. Think of it this way. The whole of your life, once you're in the gospel, is to be deepening your understanding of, your appreciation for, and your demonstration of the gospel in your life. Okay? That's what that means. Now, here, the way I, I can't, I liked the way a couple of writers kind of put this. Here we have, we're going to look at it as six examples of doctrine in three pairs. Uh, so this is just the way we're going to look at it today. And so the first pair we see is repentance and faith. Now, repentance and faith is the only true right response to the gospel. 
No, there's nothing inherently wrong with a sinner's prayer. You've heard Dwayne kind of dealing with that. He's reading, we're reading some things and debating, not debating some things. We're discussing and kind of learning some things. And there's some who don't like that. There's nothing inherently wrong, but nowhere in the word do you see someone responding to the gospel by praying a sinner's prayer. That's a starting point. That's an entry point by which you turn from your sin and yourself and you trust in Jesus Christ. Okay? That's how we rightly respond to the gospel. But of course, we know, hopefully we know, that repentance is not something you do once. Because if you've been with Christ long, you've had to repent a whole lot if you're walking with Him. Right? But you don't keep getting saved over and over and over and over. Right? So that's what that means. Second, we have the washings, which here in this context of this letter probably has to do with Christian baptism as opposed to uh, prior Jewish cleansing rituals. That's why he says it that way. And then the laying on of hands. Now again, considering the rest of the book, this is probably, it's a little vague here, but it's probably referring to some function of the body in community together. Okay? Whether it's sending people out or praying for people, some function of the body of Christ in community. In other words, or in our words, you could, we could say being connected. We, you should know if you've been a Christian long, you've heard somebody say, you need to find a church. You need to get connected to a good gospel-centered Bible-preaching church, right? We know that that's important. These two are basic things. Once you're saved, you should be baptized and you should connect with a gospel-centered, Bible-preaching church. You should get plugged into a small group, which is where really only real, true biblical community can happen. Biblical community that we're commanded in Scripture cannot happen in this room. You need a small group. Another message. We'll get to that another day. Then there's the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. Now, these last two, most good Jewish believers, most of them, would just assume these things are real and true in, in the future, Right? But the interesting thing, again, uh, that Matt Chandler kind of pointed out, the way he sees this, kind of, I, I kind of liked it, it made sense, was that if you look at them, the, re- the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment are in the future, these have to do with eschatology. These have to do with end times. These have to do with revelation stuff, right? Now, I found that interesting that I came across that insight as the new Left Behind movies coming out. We're not going to get started. Don't get me started on people taking their theological cues from a movie rather than the book. We're not, we're not going to dwell on that. But for that kind of idea to be here, knowing that these two basic things will happen, that everyone living and dead will stand before God as judge at one of two places, that's important. To know there's some things in the future that are coming for you. And one of them is to stand before God as your judge. Either as a lost person or as a saved person. Everybody will. Again, we don't have time to break this down today. Well, meet me outside. I'll be glad to explain what those mean. But Paul said, it's appointed unto man. Every man wants to die. And then judgment. That's coming for us. Right? That's important. But don't get so caught up in trying to figure out exactly what's going to happen and when. Don't get so caught up in which theological camp in that is right. Or don't get so caught up in even making your end times view a non-negotiable. How about this? How about you just live every moment like Christ is coming back to execute the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And he's already on the way for you. How about that? Now, these are all examples of good, solid, basic biblical doctrine that we should be knowing and learning. But it's not a comprehensive list. 
Right? It's a starting point. The point he's making is this. Once you have been saved, once a person is in Christ, you start your new life in Christ. You are a new creation. You're born again. So you start as a spiritual babe and you grow from there. So how do you, what do you do? First, you should learn some basics of your new faith in Christ, right? Which the Bible and your church, most importantly in a small group, can help you with. And then you build on those. Now, there's a thousand different ways of specifics that can look like. But you build. You don't stay at the starting line. Paul talks about running your race. You don't run a race by staying at the starting line, right? So you don't stay at the starting line at the beginner level in your knowledge, in your action, in your living, in your, in your service. You begin and continue the process of learning and living in Christ. You strive to know him more and to make him known more, right? And according to verse 3, very simply, it is by his grace that we can begin to do that. That's why. Why should I read my Bible? That's why. Why should I plug into a small group that helps me grow? That's why. That's why these things are important. That, that's why we should, should do those things. They take us deeper into the word, deeper into the gospel, and deeper into the heart of our Lord. Therefore, let us leave elementary, beginner-level doctrines and deepen our roots in Christ. Okay? The deeper the root, the deeper the root, the better the fruit. Deep root, good fruit. Now remember that, because that's our second point. But before we can actually get to talk about the good fruit, <clears throat> we come to a part of the text that is <laughs> it's, it's challenging. I tend to think that when you're working through a text in the, in the Bible, you should work through all of it. Uh, if God put it there in that order, then that's probably the order he wanted it read in. That's, that's my opinion. So we're going to deal with this. We're going to deal with it. To be clear, I'm just going make to a, make a very clear point. To be clear, we as Southern Baptists believe, and more importantly, I, as best I can understand this book, we believe that according to the whole counsel of the Word of God... That a person who is truly a believer, a follower of Christ, once they are in Christ, they cannot, cannot, cannot lose their salvation. That's what we believe. You, you might not want to clap yet. I, I realize not everybody in this room, even in this room, may disagree, may disagree, you may disagree with me on that. I would firmly say to you, though, that I'm convinced that this is the position of the Word of God. That's what the Bible teaches. There are too many places in Scripture that tell us otherwise. A few of them are John 6, 39 and 40. John 10, 27 and 29. Romans eleven twenty nine, Philippians 1, 6. 1 Peter 1, verse 5, to name a few. Right? So we're not going to debate if that's what this can mean because it cannot mean that. So let's read the next block of verses and then, then we get to the difficult part. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Matthew Henry, some of you guys know that's one of my favorite commentators. He's a, an old Puritan commentator from what? 
300 years ago now. His language is kind of that kind of language. I, don't, I have no idea why I dig Matthew Henry, but I do. He says this, these verses. This, therefore, is no proof of the final apostasy of the true saints. Apostasy meaning total denial, total walking away, total falling away from grace. These true believers may fall indeed frequently and foully, but they will not fall totally nor finally from God. The purpose and the power of God, the purchase and the prayer of Christ, the promise of the gospel, the everlasting covenant that God has made with them, ordered in all things and sure, the indwelling Holy Spirit and the immortal seed of the word of God, these are their security. So let me make clear again, once God has worked in a person's heart, drawn them to himself, overcome all of their rebellion and resistance, called them in his grace, opened their eyes to their sin in the light of his holiness, revealed to their heart his gift of grace through the shed blood of Christ, enabled their faith to trust in him and repent of sin, and sealed their life in the Holy Spirit. Once he has done this, it cannot be undone. It cannot be undone. Now just let that sink in. You're going to need it. Let that settle deep into your soul. Do not lose sight of that as we work through what is a very unsettling text for some. If you are certain of your faith in Christ, do not let that be loosened from your grip. Because what God has done in salvation cannot be undone. So I've heard some preachers say, well, I don't know what that means, but it can't mean that. Which, in my mind, well, then what does it mean? So what, what can these mean? If it, if it cannot mean loss of salvation, if it cannot mean that for a true believer, then it, it must mean this, the way it falls in the context. Let me word it this way. When someone has had ample opportunity to be around and maybe even in the church of Jesus... To maybe even participate in worship and even community and even service. To hear the gospel over and over and over. When God possibly has even begun to work in the heart by his Holy Spirit to convict of sin. When a work of grace has been started in the life of that person. And that person continues, continues, continues to resist, to rebel, to run to get harder and harder, there can come a point where God will stop that work of grace. Stop drawing. Stop calling. And if that happens, according to this part of the Word of God, there is no hope for salvation for that person. And that should frighten you. It frightens me. Now understand... Don't you ever, 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 ever look at another person and say, I think God's done with him. That's not your place. That is God's place. Your job is to keep loving, keep sharing, keep inviting, keep con- connecting with that person. Whether you think they're saved or not. We should all, let me put it this way. As believers, we should always be preaching the gospel to one another. Okay? That's not our call. And that can look like what we typically think of as a person who's resisting the gospel clearly in a sinful life, obviously in rebellion. Here's the scary, scary, scary part to me, though. That can look an awful lot like. That can look an indistinguishably like religion. Very good religion. Now, 
If you're here today and you're hearing the God, maybe you've never heard it before, you've never responded, you, you will have opportunity to respond today. Uh, but, but if you've been here a while and you've been hearing and you think, I'm going to do it eventually, I'm just not ready. Let me tell you something. This just told you, you cannot assume you, have, you will continue indefinitely to have opportunity to respond to the gospel. Do it today. Please, for the sake of your eternity, do it today. I don't know what they'll think. Who cares what they'll think? We're talking about heaven or hell. That's what we're talking about. Well, I don't know. I've been in church a long time. Who can, Think of the test. If you know the testimony of your pastor, he was a, what, a 21, 22-year-old worship leader and realized, I'm lost. You know what he decided to do? He didn't decide to worry about what the church people would think. He went to the pastor and said, I need help. And he came to Christ. Now lean in. But if you claim Christ, if you claim Christ, if you're a church person, you're even a regular participant in church life and activity and worship and service, but there is no real fruit, no real evidence, no demonstrations of His grace in your life. In other words, no real love. No real joy, no real honest to goodness, peace in your heart where nobody else really knows but you and God. You're alone in the dark with nothing but you and your thoughts and God, and there is no peace, there is nothing. Then you are possibly, maybe even probably, not truly His. That's what this must mean. And as good as you think you are, this says you are destined for a Christless eternity in hell. And if you continue in that state to resist, to resist, to resist, there can come a point where God will say, I'm done drawing. That should frighten you. John Piper says, it is one thing for a stranger to the faith to resist Christ. But it is entirely another thing for a person who's been in the church and has been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and become a partaker in the Holy Spirit and tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. It's another thing altogether for that person to say after all those blessings and all those experiences, I think that what the world offers is better than Christ. That is the person being represented in these verses and being warned to repent. Two weeks ago... Dwayne used a clay pot of clay as an illustration that I thought was trash and I almost threw away before the sermon and I happened to just put it back here and he came looking for it. The illustration was he left it in his basement and he went back to use it and it was hard as a rock. Being that the longer the clay was exposed to the air and the elements and not worked and shaped, the harder it became. The longer a person hears the gospel and resists and rebels and trusts in their own goodness and wraps themselves in the insulation of their own false righteousness, the harder the heart becomes. Please stop hardening your heart today. Hear what great love our God has shown you in Christ, that while we were still sinners, as good as I think I am, and while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me, and he died for you. David, do you mean there are people who claim Christ, maybe have a long time, but might not really be saved? That's what the book said. Yes. And I cannot preach a gospel that gives assurance where there is no assurance to be had. There is assurance to be had, by the way, but not for that person. 
We're going to get there. And I've had, this, I've had this response in this conversation. What does that mean about my friend or relative who was baptized as a kid? BBS, something like that. Grew up, stopped going to church, lost all interest in the things of God. Lived a life that was clearly not about God at all. Are you saying they weren't saved? You're saying they're not in heaven now? I just won't believe that. I won't follow a God who would do that. I would say two things to you with as much patience and love as I can. Some of you know that's not very much. I know I'm a jerk. I own it. One, I can't answer for them, and neither can you. They're not here anymore. All we can do is look at the fruit they left. God is their judge, not me, not you. And we will have to trust the sovereign, holy, always right God to have done what is right with that person in eternity. That's who we're going to have to trust. It's not our call. Two, if you're in conversation with me, stop changing the subject. We're not talking about them. We're talking about you. God is dealing with you. God is calling you right now. God is screaming, pounding on your heart, screaming out His love and mercy and grace to you. And you're trying to find something else, one more thing you can hold against him to justify your continued resistance and rebellion. For the love of God Almighty, stop. Repent. Trust in Christ and be saved today. You do not have forever. Make certain that your root, the gospel of Jesus, and its reality in your life by repentance of faith, make sure that's where your root is. And nothing else. Make sure that it's right and certain and deep. And according to the beginnings, we're going to go back to the beginning for a second, progressively deep. We're growing in Christ. That root must be and only be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, rightly responded to. We're going to get to that. Then from that deep root, now we can talk about what we will begin to see, and that's good fruit. Now we can start picking ourselves up from that drop kick to the face that the author gives us. And look ahead for what he wants his, for his readers and for us. Read verses 7 and 8 with me. For land that has drunk the rain, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, we start, uh, here we see a pretty simple illustration. Pretty si- really is a pretty simple illustration. Good ground produces good crops. That's the basic truth here. Bad ground produces bad crops. Now, of course, we know that the ground has to be tended and fertilized and all the work that goes with that to produce the best crop possible, right? We have to put in the work to till the good ground and to tend the crop. We have to do that. But it always starts with the right ground, right? I'm not a farmer, but I think, I think there's some weight to that. There's a reason why you don't see cotton farmers or soybean farmers or corn farmers in the Sahara Desert. It's not good ground as far as growing crops are concerned, right? The point is, and what he's pointing to here is, you have to have the right ground. And when you have the right ground, and in this case, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ as a reality in the life, then good fruit will come. And for our part, from our perspective, we can only assess, I'm not going to use the word judge, we're going to avoid that, and use the word assess, because we ask that question, what about that person? 
The only thing we have to assess whether or not the ground was good was the fruit that it has produced. That's the only thing we have. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit deeply, but let me say this. This does not mean that your life now, in this life, your life is ever, has to be, or supposed to be perfect. Let's just take that pressure off. We're not talking about you called being called to be absolutely 100% all the time perfect, sin-free. That ain't going to happen in this life, right? I'll be the first to tell you, I don't have it all together. So please don't get the impression, try to keep it out from the beginning, that every time you fail, every time you fall, every time you slip and sin again, that every time that happens, you're in danger of hell all over again. Not if you're truly His. Remember, that is not possible. That's not possible. Okay, let me say that again. If you're truly His, it's not possible for you to be unsaved. Are you with me? Okay. Remember Matthew Henry again. He said, these true Christians, true Christians may fall frequently and foully, but never totally and finally from God. But again, if you're... If the pattern of your life, the whole complete pattern of your life is away from God and not running toward Him and His grace in the gospel. If you can sin, turn from God, and live that way with, without regret, with none, without conviction, came up in Sunday school this morning, without conviction, without remorse, with no repentance, with no redirection from the Holy Spirit who's supposed to be living within you, then the complete and total bad fruit that your life is producing may in fact be telling you again that you don't belong to the one you claim to belong to. Now, the author in these two verses is, we, we already said, he's talking about the, the things that are to come from the life of a believer. But there's this little piece in verse 8 that I think we would be remiss if we didn't point out. That's the end of the bad ground is to be burned. I think it would be off target if we did not include in our understanding of those words the intention of representing hell, right? The eternal end of a life that bears all bad fruit and no good fruit. Deep root, good fruit. You can't have the second without the first. You with me? Okay. This tells us two things very briefly. One is that our understanding of verse 4 to 6, I think it tells us that we're correct for the person who has truly become Christ's own through repentance and faith cannot, cannot, have their eternal end in hell. Second, we see again the very simple illustration that if our life is not bearing any, let me stop there again, not perfect, I don't always get it right. It's okay. Not perfect. Not ever without any blemish. Not in 100% all the time good, but not bearing any useful fruit from the gospel, then you should be very concerned to make certain that you are in the right ground. That you're planted in the right ground. Deep root, good fruit. Can't get here without here. Okay? You with me? The fruit proves the root. Or the lack thereof. No fruit, no root. Are you with me? I know this is heavy. I, I don't know why God gives me these things to preach. I don't. So let's take a moment. Let's take a moment and just catch our breath. Because this is heavy. This is heavy stuff. 
This is scary stuff. This is the kind of stuff that can send you into panic mode. And I, that happened to me the last couple of weeks. I'm working through this text, and I had some moments of, I had some moments of panic. Wait a minute. I see that and that and that and a list of other things in my life that shouldn't be there that are. And you get so fixated on the bad things, you think that's all I can see right now. What am I? Am I not saved? God, I want to do everything I can to prove I am saved and not saved. What do you want me to do? I'll read my Bible more. Okay, I'll read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. You, I, I, I want, just tell me what to do. You want me to go to El Ranchito? I'll go to El Ranchito. What do you want me to do? Tell me. I mean, some pa- panic moments, right? This is the kind of text that can, it can knock your faith feet out from under you. Except, except for what comes next. Except for the rest of chapter 6. We're not going to get to all of chapter 6 today. We're going to do the last of it tonight. I hope you'll come back. The writer of Hebrews, he knew that his audience would have the wind knocked out of him from this. He knew that. He, he knew they were good Jewish religious people with a good religious background and practice, but they needed to cling to the gospel and not to that. He, he also knew and saw that God was at work in them. So he turns and he gives them and us, I hope, some encouraging words. Deep root, demonstrated by good fruit, not always perfect fruit, but good fruit, helps us know we can and do have a sure foot. Here's the big idea of the rest of the chapter. Again, we won't do all of this morning, uh, but before I read the last of our text, here's the big idea. That thing that we talked about that's so important to you, that's eternally heaven and hell important to you, that is you believing and responding rightly to the gospel, the gospel, the only security for your soul in eternity, and the proving of that with your life, that you are the proving that you are indeed safe in the gospel. Here's the big idea. All of that that weighs on us right now, that, that wants to, it's not up to you. Oh, come on. It's not up to you. You don't have to worry about getting it all done. You know why? You can't. You cannot. You cannot do all the things that God has called you to do. Only God can do those things in you. God, you want me to love somebody? You want me to I don't love people. God has to do that in me. You want me to have patience? No way. God has to do that in me. You, you see? The weight of the task and the God doesn't rest on you. It rests on God. You can't do it. Only God can. And if God's going to do it, it's going to get done. Right? The rest of this chapter is an encouragement to those of us who have faith in Christ that, that we're just sucker punched by some pretty stern warnings and some encouragement to us to continue to trust, not in us, not in our work, not in our response, but in our great God and his endless love and patience and grace. Read with me verses 9 through 12, and then we're going to finish. And though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and the serving of the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end. 
so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The author, I mean, talk about an abrupt change of course. Hey, all you religious people, you might be going to hell. But I don't think so. I don't think so. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, we feel sure of better things. You, he says, in you, I see fruit. And I would say to you as well that in many of you in this room, I see fruit. I see some fruit that maybe you don't even see. I see evidences of God's grace being present in your lives. It may not be perfect. It may not even be plentiful in some cases. But I see it. I see it. And because I see it in you, I am confident in salvation for some of you. Now, I know, of course, I cannot truly judge the heart and mind. Only God can do that. But I also know, as this guy knew, that God would never be so unjust. He would never be so out of line with his own character and faithfulness and grace to look at the real fruit. And he knows what's real fruit, by the way. He, he would not look at the real fruit in your lives, whatever level of maturity it's at, and not recognize evidence of his own grace in you. He would never be that unjust. And I did say evidences of his grace and not your good works. Don't let work and love in verse 10 make you think we're talking about earning God's favor or grace. That's not. It's not. You can't do that. Because remember, it's not up to you. But when God sees our good works, we'll call them gospel-fueled good works that aren't going to happen unless you're fueled by the gospel, right? When he sees those things done in sincerity, out of love and gratitude, because of what he has done. Not to get something from him, but because of what he has already done for the glory of his name alone. When he sees those things, he doesn't then decide how much he loves you. And some of you need to breathe a big sigh of relief right there. He doesn't look at your life, good, bad, whatever, and then decide whether he loves you or not. He doesn't then decide whether or not you get into heaven or not. But rather when he sees rightly motivated good works in the life of a believer, it's like he says, yep, that one's mine. That one's mine. I see evidence of my work in them. And that's not why they're mine. That's because they're mine. Works... Your effort, your righteousness, never precedes redemption. Ever. Go all the way back to Exodus. God redeemed his people out before he laid out his requirements of them. In the law. I'm going to say that again. I don't think that registered with some. God redeemed. He saved his people out of Israel before he laid out his requirements of them. And that previewed the pattern for how God, our great, gracious, wonderful God, would deal with us in the gospel. He saves us first, and then comes the evidence. His work in us, making us daily less like us and more like the Savior who has saved us, comes after he redeems us. He never says, he never says, he never says, do this and I will save you. Never. He says, I will save you and then I will teach you how to live. 
That's how it works. We need to stop putting the cart before the horse. The reason for this sort of sudden shift to a clear word of encouragement that I, I, hope is, I hope is registering if you're a believer in Christ, especially after having been just waylaid in the first half, I hope you're getting this encouragement. He wants us to have assurance and he wants us to demonstrate that we have assurance of eternal life in Christ so that we will have, show the same earnestness to have this full assurance of hope until the end and that we may not be sluggish. Especially in light of so heavy a message, so heavy a text, I want you who know Christ to have full assurance of Him and the reality of the gospel in you. And it is possible. I want you to know that the one who has saved you, that that is God and God alone, and the one who has saved you is the one who will keep you saved. You don't save yourself, and it's not up to yourself to keep you saved. That's God's job. Your eternal security, your eternal security, your eternal security does not depend on you. It depends on God. Jude 24 and 25 tells us that. If it were up to you or me to keep us saved, you and I both know we'd be in trouble. Like the author says to his readers, I desire you and me to show the same earnestness to have that we have full assurance until the end. I want you, because of what he has done for you, not to be sluggish, not to be slow, not to be childish, not to be lazy in striving to live in a way that demonstrates what he has done for you. As he says, imitating others. All of you know there are people in your life who love Jesus that you can imitate. Maybe not exactly, but there's things you can learn from them, right? Who through their faith and patience, things that God has done in them, evidences of His grace, they inherit the promises. I want you to press into God. I want you to serve Him with gladness. I want you to rest in His grace. I want you to pursue holiness. I want you to love others. I want you to persevere in your faith. And when we fall short of those things, which we will, which I do, I want you to rest in the promises of God in the gospel that he is the one who will keep you and present you blameless in Christ. Again, Jude 24. And then I want you, by his grace, to repent of those failures again with renewed and deeper appreciation for his grace and get right back on track in following Christ. I want these things for you. I want these things for me. Do you know how we get to those things? How should we respond to those things? How, how do we apply this kind of night and day kind of message? Two points of application. One, you need to make sure you're a Christian. That, that seems a little overly simplistic, right? But think about the first half of the text we were in today. You need to make sure that you have heard clearly and rightly responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Allow me to take a moment to do just that. To share with you the gospel that you need to respond to. I'm going to go back a little bit. We're going to start with God. Many of you have heard me say it this way before. God is holy. That word means every other word that describes God put into one. He's perfect. He's pure. He's right. He's just. He's merciful. He's loving. He's faithful. He's never ending. He's all of those things. He's holy. Man 
you and me and everybody else that ever walked the planet except for Jesus Christ? Not. Not. And unholiness, unrighteousness, imperfection is first and foremost always an offense to holy God. Before anybody else is offended, God is offended. Right? And holiness can't be with unholiness. Perfection can't be with imperfection. Because if it was, it would no longer be holy. So we have a big, serious problem. We are irreparably separated from a holy, righteous, right God. Who would be right if that's where he stopped. Said, that's it. I'm done. And so are you. But that's not all God is. Because the way I always ask the question is, what can we do? What can I do so that I stop being unholy enough and be holy just enough to be with God? The answer is nothing. There's nothing I can do. But Christ came. Oh, come on, church. You are, we are the church, right? We were doomed, separated from a right God under his wrath. Doomed to an eternity apart from him in hell. But Christ came for us. And he did what only he could do. He died a death that was the only one that would ever be fully sufficient to cover every sin ever. And he did it for you and he did it for me. So that you would have a way, the only way, the only way to rather than have to stand before God one day in wrath and in judgment, we get to stand before him in love and in mercy and in forgiveness and in eternal life. Christ came. You have one part. And you can't even do that part unless Jesus said, no man comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You can't even do this unless God's working it in you. You have one part. That's to respond. Here's how you respond. You turn from sin and self and everything that it means. And you might need a little more explanation to that. Come see me or Brent after. We'll be glad to talk with you about that. You turn from sin and self and you trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. That's it. Everything else, the requirements, the laws, the blah, 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 all that stuff comes later. You have to settle that first. Now, if you have done that and you're sure, we're going we're gonna to come back to how you can respond this morning because we're going to respond together. But if you're not sure, if you're not certain, or if you know you've never really responded at all, whether this is the first time you've ever heard the gospel or the hundredth, for your sake and for the sake of your eternity, do not delay. Stop worrying about what someone else is going to think. Stop worrying about not being good enough. Not going to happen. Stop worrying about what comes next. Well, I need to do this and this and this before. No. This comes first. Redemption precedes everything else. You need to settle your eternity first. And there's only one way to do it and be right with God. You have heard. In a few moments, you'll have opportunity to respond. If you're not certain, today you should make certain. Trust in Jesus. Turn from your sin and be saved today. Number two. If you... If you're settled, I'm in. I know I'm in, but by the grace of God alone, nothing I've ever brought to the table, but by God's great grace and mercy in the shed blood of Christ, I know I'm in. Then, with, 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 get rid of the restraint and worship Him with reckless abandon. Give thanks to the one. We can't even clap for that. Can I just stop for a second? I'm sorry. That troubles me. 
We're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ that saved you from hell. And we should respond with worship and praise. That's it? By the way, I'm yelling at myself there because I do the same thing. Thank God for His grace, right? We simply give thanks with unrestrained abandon and worship to the one who has given you life. And do everything you can to know him better. Specifically, start reading his word. I don't understand it. That's okay. That's okay if you don't understand it all. We have people that can help you with that. We have small groups, pastors and Christians who can help you with that. Get connected in a small group. That'll help. Be, be, get connected in Jesus' church and, and be connected. Be faithful there. Serve Him where you can. In other words, Christian, when you know you're in, start doing the little basic things that you know to do. Start doing the basic things while you're learning every step, one step at a time, following Christ. It really is that simple. It's going to look different for a person who's been rightly following Christ for 50 years than for 50 days. That's irrelevant. Are you learning? Are you growing? At this moment, we're going to worship. We're going to praise. We're going to respond in prayer. As we pray together, we will be having what we call a time of response. You are welcome to come to our steps to pray for whatever reason. I'll be down front. Brent will be down front. Perhaps you'd like to, Perhaps we had one join our church membership last week. Maybe that's what you need to do today. Maybe you'd like to rededicate your life to Christ, to the great God who has saved you. Perhaps you know that today you need to respond to the gospel and become Christ's rightfully and truthfully. It would be my great joy, and I know it would be Brent's great joy to help you with that. But maybe you just need to pray. I need help. I need, I, need, I need God to search my heart. I need God to search my heart and lay it honestly, openly before him because I need to know for real if I'm for real. There will be people from on both ends who, who would love the honor of praying with you, I'm sure. Perhaps you're just so overwhelmed. So overwhelmed by the goodness and greatness of the grace of God to you. That when we start singing, you just can't be still. You can't be quiet. You can't keep your hands down anymore. Then take off the shackles of what other people will think and worship. Let's pray. God. I am undone by your goodness, by your grace. Overwhelmed by what you have done for us in the gospel. And God, if there's one here this morning who has never responded to you, maybe, maybe they've heard the gospel for the first time, work in their hearts. Maybe they've heard it a thousand times and you're breaking, you're working in your Holy Spirit to break down the hardness of their heart. God, I pray that by your grace you would overcome all of that resistance and all of that rebellion and all of that hardness and shine the light of the gospel into their heart today. For those of us that know you and we know we know you, Lord, help us first to live like it, to demonstrate it, and to worship you as people who have been brought from death to life. So for whatever you're about to do, Lord, God, begin with me. 
I didn't need you just when I was saved. I need you right now. Begin with me. And you do what you've already purposed to do and what only you can do for our good, for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Would you stand with